Section 52 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 4, Section 52 selected excerpts by augustine birrell part one dr johnson criticism writes johnson in the sixtieth idler is a study by which men grow important and formidable at a very small expense the power of invention has been conferred by nature upon few and the labour of learning those sciences which may by mere labour be obtained is too great to be willingly endured but every man can exert such judgment as he has upon the works of others and he whom nature has made weak and idleness keeps ignorant may yet support his vanity by the name of a critic to proceed with our task by the method of comparison is to pursue a course open to grave objection yet it is forced upon us when we find as we lately did a writer in the times newspaper in the course of a not very discriminating review of mr frude's recent volumes casually remarking as if it admitted of no more doubt than the day's price of consoles that carlyle was a greater man than johnson it is a good thing to be positive to be positive in your opinions and selfish in your habits is the best recipe if not for happiness at all events for that far more attainable commodity comfort with which we are acquainted a noisy man sang poor cooper who could not bear anything louder than the hissing of a tea-urn a noisy man is always in the right and a positive man can seldom be proved wrong still in literature it is very desirable to preserve a moderate measure of independence and we therefore make bold to ask whether it is as plain as the old hill of howth that carlyle was a greater man than johnson is not the precise contrary the truth no abuse of carlyle need be looked for here or from me when a man of genius and of letters happens to have any striking virtues such as purity temperance honesty the novel task of dwelling on them has such attraction for us that we are content to leave the elucidation of his faults to his personal friends and to stern unbending moralists like mr edmund yates and the world newspaper to love carlyle is thanks to mr frude's superhuman ideal of friendship a task of much heroism almost meriting a pension still it is quite possible for the candid and truth-loving soul but a greater than johnson he most certainly was not there is a story in boswell of an ancient beggar-woman who whilst asking an alms of the doctor described herself to him in a lucky moment for her pocket as an old struggler 
johnson his biographer tells us was visibly affected the phrase stuck to his memory and was frequently applied to himself i too so he would say am an old struggler so too in all conscience was carlyle the struggles of johnson have long been historical those of carlyle have just become so we are interested in both to be indifferent would be inhuman both men had great endowments tempestuous natures hard lots they were not amongst dame fortune's favorites they had to fight their way what they took they took by storm but and here is a difference indeed johnson came off victorious carlyle did not boswell's book is an arch of triumph through which as we read we see his hero passing into eternal fame to take up his place with those dead but sceptred sovereigns who still rule our spirits from their urns froude's book is a tomb over which the lovers of carlyle's genius will never cease to shed tender but regretful tears we doubt whether there is in english literature a more triumphant book than boswell's what materials for tragedy are wanting johnson was a man of strong passions unbending spirit violent temper as poor as a church mouse and as proud as the proudest of church dignitaries endowed with the strength of a coal-heaver the courage of a lion and the tongue of dean swift he could knock down booksellers and silence bargees he was melancholy almost to madness radically wretched indolent blinded diseased poverty was long his portion not that genteel poverty that is sometimes behindhand with its rent but that hungry poverty that does not know where to look for its dinner against all these things had this old struggler to contend over all these things did this old struggler prevail over even the fear of death the giving up of this intellectual being which had haunted his gloomy fancy for a lifetime he seems finally to have prevailed and to have met his end as a brave man should carlyle writing to his wife says and truthfully enough the more the devil worries me the more i wring him by the nose but then if the devil's was the only nose that was wrung in the transaction why need carlyle cry out so loud after buffeting one's way through the storm-tossed pages of frude's carlyle in which the universe is stretched upon the rack because food disagrees with man and cocks crow with what thankfulness and reverence do we read once again the letter in which johnson tells mrs thrale how he has been called to endure not dyspepsia or sleeplessness but paralysis itself on monday i sat for my picture and walked a considerable way with little inconvenience in the afternoon and evening i felt myself light and easy and began to plan schemes of life thus i went to bed and in a short time waked and sat up as has long been my custom when i felt a confusion in my head 
which lasted, I suppose, about half a minute. I was alarmed, and prayed God that however much he might afflict my body, he would spate my understanding. Soon after, I perceived that I had suffered a paralytic stroke, and that my speech was taken from me. I had no pain, and so little dejection in this dreadful state, that I wondered at my own apathy, and considered that perhaps death itself, when it should come, would excite less horror than seems now to attend it. In order to rouse the vocal organs, I took two drams. I then went to bed, and, strange as it may seem, I think slept. When I saw light, it was time I should contrive what I should do. Though God stopped my speech, he left me my hand. I enjoyed a mercy which was not granted to my dear friend Lawrence, who now perhaps overlooks me as I am writing, and rejoices that I have what he wanted. My first note was necessarily to my servant, who came in talking, and could not immediately comprehend why he should read what I put into his hands. How this will be perceived by you I know not. I hope you will sympathize with me. But perhaps my mistress, gracious, mild, and good, cries, Is he dumb? Tis time he should. I suppose you may wish to know how my disease is treated by the physicians. They put a blister upon my back, and two from my ear to my throat, one on a side. The blister on the back has done little, and those on the throat have not risen. I bullied and bounced, it sticks to our last sand, and compelled the apothecary to make his salve according to the Edinburgh dispensatory, that it might adhere better. I have now two on my own prescription. They likewise give me salt of hartshorn, which I take with no great confidence. But I am satisfied that what can be done is done for me. I am almost ashamed of this querulous letter, but now it is written, let it go. This is indeed tonic and bark for the mind. If irritated by a comparison that ought never to have been thrust upon us, we ask why it is that the reader of Boswell finds it as hard to help loving Johnson as the reader of Froude finds it hard to avoid disliking Carlyle. The answer must be that whilst the elder man of letters was full to overflowing with the milk of human kindness, the younger one was full to overflowing with something not nearly so nice, and that whilst Johnson was preeminently a reasonable man, reasonable in all his demands and expectations, Carlyle was the most unreasonable mortal that ever exhausted the patience of nurse, mother, or wife. Of Dr. Johnson's affectionate nature, nobody has written with nobler appreciation than Carlyle himself. Perhaps it is this divine feeling of affection throughout manifested that principally attracts us to Johnson. A true brother of men is he, and filial lover of the earth. 
the day will come when it will be recognized that carlyle as a critic is to be judged by what he himself corrected for the press and not by splenetic entries in diaries or whimsical extravagances in private conversation of johnson's reasonableness nothing need be said except that it is patent everywhere his wife's judgment was a sound one he is the most sensible man i ever met as for his brutality of which at one time we used to hear a great deal we cannot say of it what hookham frere said of lander's immorality that it was mere imaginary classicality wholly devoid of criminal reality it was nothing of the sort dialectically the great doctor was a great brute the fact is he had so accustomed himself to wordy warfare that he lost all sense of moral responsibility and cared as little for men's feelings as a napoleon did for their lives when the battle was over the doctor frequently did what no soldier ever did that i have heard tell of apologized to his victims and drank wine or lemonade with them it must also be remembered that for the most part his victims sought him out they came to be tossed and gored and after all are they so much to be pitied they have our sympathy and the doctor has our applause i am not prepared to say with the simpering fellow with weak legs whom david copperfield met at mr waterbrook's dinner-table that i would sooner be knocked down by a man with blood than picked up by a man without any but argumentatively speaking i think it would be better for a man's reputation to be knocked down by dr johnson than picked up by mr froude johnson's claim to be the best of our talkers cannot on our present materials be contested for the most part we have only talk about other talkers johnson's is matter of record carlyle no doubt was a great talker no man talked against talk or broke silence to praise it more eloquently than he but unfortunately none of it is in evidence all that is given us is a sort of combination service writ large we soon weary of it man does not live by curses alone an unhappier prediction of a boy's future was surely never made than that of johnson's by his cousin mr cornelius ford who said to the infant samuel you will make your way the more easily in the world as you are content to dispute no man's claim to conversation excellence and they will therefore more willingly allow your pretensions as a writer unfortunate mr ford the man never breathed whose claim to conversation excellence dr johnson did not dispute on every possible occasion whilst just because he was admittedly so good a talker his pretensions as a writer have been occasionally slighted johnson's personal character has generally been allowed to stand high it however has not been submitted to recent tests to be the first to smell a fault is the pride of the modern biographer
boswell's artless pages afford useful hints not lightly to be disregarded during some portion of johnson's married life he had lodgings first at greenwich afterwards at hampstead but he did not always go home o nights sometimes preferring to roam the streets with that vulgar ruffian savage who was certainly no fit company for him he once actually quarrelled with tetty who despite her ridiculous name was a very sensible woman with a very sharp tongue and for a season like stars they dwelt apart of the real merits of this dispute we must resign ourselves to ignorance the materials for its discussion do not exist even croker could not find them neither was our great moralist as sound as one would have liked to see him in the matter of the payment of small debts when he came to die he remembered several of these outstanding accounts but what assurance have we that he remembered them all one sum of ten pounds he sent across to the honest fellow from whom he had borrowed it with an apology for its delay which since it had extended over a period of twenty years was not superfluous i wonder whether he ever repaid mr gilly the guinea he once borrowed of him to give to a very small boy who had just been apprenticed to a printer if he did not it was a great shame that he was indebted to sir joshua in a small loan is apparent from the fact that it was one of his three dying requests to that great man that he should release him from it as of course the most amiable of painters did the other two requests it will be remembered were to read his bible and not to use his brush on sundays the good sir joshua gave the desired promises with a full heart for these two great men loved one another but subsequently discovered the sabbatical restriction not a little irksome and after a while resumed his former practice arguing with himself that the doctor really had no business to extract any such promise the point is a nice one and perhaps ere this the two friends have met and discussed it in the elysian fields if so i hope the doctor grown angelical kept his temper with the mild shade of reynolds better than on the historical occasion when he discussed with him the question of strong drinks against garrick johnson undoubtedly cherished a smouldering grudge which however he never allowed any one but himself to fan into flame his pique was natural garrick had been his pupil at ediel near lichfield they had come up to town together with an easy united fortune of fourpence current coin of the realm garrick soon had the world at his feet and garnered golden grain johnson became famous too but remained poor and dingy garrick surrounded himself with what only money can buy good pictures and rare books johnson cared nothing for pictures how should he he could not see them but he did care a great deal about books and the pernickety little player was chary about lending his splendidly bound rarities to his quondam preceptor our sympathies in this matter are entirely with garrick 
Johnson was one of the best men that ever lived, but not to lend books to. Like Lady Slattern, he had a most observant thumb. But Garrick had no real cause for complaint. Johnson may have soiled his folios and sneered at his trade. But in life Johnson loved Garrick, and in death embalmed his memory in a sentence which can only die with the English language. I am disappointed by that stroke of death which has eclipsed the gaiety of nations and impoverished the public stock of harmless pleasure. Will it be believed that puny critics have been found to quarrel with this colossal compliment on the poor pretext of its falsehood? Garrick's death urged these dullards could not possibly have eclipsed the gaiety of nations, since he had retired from the stage months previous to his demise. When will mankind learn that literature is one thing and sworn testimony another? Johnson the author is not always fairly treated. Phrases are convenient things to hand about and it is as little the custom to inquire into their truth as it is to read the letterpress on banknotes. We are content to count banknotes and to repeat phrases. One of these phrases is that whilst everybody reads Boswell, nobody reads Johnson. The facts are otherwise. Everybody does not read Boswell, and a great many people do read Johnson. If it be asked, what do the general public know of Johnson's nine volumes octavo? I reply, beshrew the general public. What in the name of the Bodleian has the general public got to do with literature? The general public subscribes to Moody, and has its intellectual, like its lacteal sustenance, sent round to it in carts. On Saturdays these carts, laden with recent works in circulation, traverse the Uxbridge Road. On Wednesdays they toil up Highgate Hill, and if we may believe the reports of travellers, are occasionally seen rushing through the wilds of Camberwell and bumping over Blackheath. It is not a question of the general public, but of the lover of letters. Do Mr. Browning, Mr. Arnold, Mr. Lowell, Mr. Trevelyan, Mr. Stephen, Mr. Morley, know their Johnson? To doubt would be disloyalty. And what these big men know in their big way, hundreds of little men know in their little way. We have no writer with a more genuine literary flavor about him than the great cam of literature. No man of letters loved letters better than he. He knew literature in all its branches. He had read books, he had written books, he had sold books, he had bought books, and he had borrowed them. Sluggish and inert in all other directions, he pranced through libraries. He loved a catalogue, he delighted in an index. He was, to employ a happy phrase of Dr. Holmes, at home amongst books, as a stable-boy is among horses. He cared intensely about the future of literature and the fate of literary men. "'I respect Miller,' he once exclaimed. "'He has raised the price of literature.' Now Miller was a Scotchman. Even Horne Took 
was not to stand in the pillory no no the dog has too much literature for that the only time the author of rasselas met the author of the wealth of nations witnessed a painful scene the english moralist gave the scotch one the lie direct and the scotch moralist applied to the english one a phrase which would have done discredit to the lips of a costermonger but this notwithstanding when boswell reported that adam smith preferred rhyme to blank verse johnson hailed the news as enthusiastically as did cedric the saxon the english origin of the bravest knights in the retinue of the norman king did adam say that he shouted i love him for it i could hug him johnson no doubt honestly believed he held george the third in reverence but really he did not care a pin's fee for all the crowned heads of europe all his reverence was reserved for poor scholars when a small boy in a wherry on whom had devolved the arduous task of rowing johnson and his biographer across the thames said he would give all he had to know about the argonauts the doctor was much pleased and gave him or got boswell to give him a double fare he was ever an advocate of the spread of knowledge amongst all classes and both sexes his devotion to letters has received its fitting reward the love and respect of all lettered hearts the office of literature dr john brown's pleasant story has become well known of the countryman who being asked to account for the gravity of his dog replied oh sir life is full of seriousness to him he can just never get a new affection something of the spirit of this satin dog seems lately to have entered into the very people who ought to be freest from it our men of letters they are all very serious and very quarrelsome to some of them it is dangerous even to elude many are wedded to a theory or period and are the most luxurious of husbands ever ready to resent an affront to their lady this devotion makes them very grave and possibly very happy after a pedantic fashion one remembers what hazlitt who was neither happy nor pedantic has said about pedantry the power of attaching an interest to the most trifling or painful pursuits is one of the greatest happinesses of our nature the common soldier mounts the breach with joy the miser deliberately starves himself to death the mathematician sets about extracting the cube root with a feeling of enthusiasm and the lawyer sheds tears of delight over cook upon littleton he who is not in some measure a pedant though he may be a wise cannot be a very happy man possibly not but then we are surely not content that our authors should be pedants in order that they may be happy and devoted as one of the great class for whose sole use and behalf literature exists the class of readers i protest that it is to me a matter of indifference whether an author is happy or not i want him to make me happy that is his office let him discharge it 
i recognize in this connection the corresponding truth of what sidney smith makes his peter plimley say about the private virtues of mr percival the prime minister you spend a great deal of ink about the character of the present prime minister grant all that you write i say i fear that he will ruin ireland and pursue a line of policy destructive to the true interests of his country and then you tell me that he is faithful to mrs percival and kind to the master percivals i should prefer that he whipped his boys and saved his country we should never confuse functions or apply wrong tests what can books do for us dr johnson the least pedantic of men put the whole matter into a nutshell a coconut shell if you will heaven forbid that i should seek to compress the great doctor within any narrower limits than my metaphor requires when he wrote that a book should teach us either to enjoy life or endure it give us enjoyment teach us endurance hearken to the ceaseless demand and the perpetual prayer of an ever unsatisfied and always suffering humanity how is a book to answer the ceaseless demand self-forgetfulness is the essence of enjoyment and the author who would confer pleasure must possess the art or know the trick of destroying for the time the reader's own personality undoubtedly the easiest way of doing this is by the creation of a host of rival personalities hence the number and the popularity of novels whenever a novelist fails his book is said to flag that is the reader suddenly as in skating comes bump down upon his own personality and curses the unskilful author no lack of characters and continual motion is the easiest recipe for a novel which like a beggar should always be kept moving on nobody knew this better than fielding whose novels like most good ones are full of ends when those who are addicted to what is called improving reading inquire of you petulantly why you cannot find change of company and scene in books of travel you should answer cautiously that when books of travel are full of inns atmosphere and motion they are as good as any novel nor is there any reason in the nature of things why they should not always be so though experience proves the contrary the truth or falsehood of a book is immaterial george borrow's bible in spain is i suppose true though now that i come to think of it in what is to be a new light one remembers that it contains some odd things but was not borrow the accredited agent of the british and foreign bible society did he not travel and he had a free hand at their charges was he not befriended by our minister at madrid mr villiers subsequently earl of clarendon in the peerage of england it must be true and yet at this moment i would as lief read a chapter of the bible in spain as i would gil blas nay i positively would give the preference to signor giorgio nobody can sit down to read borrow's books without as completely forgetting himself as if he were a boy in the forest with girth and wamba 
Burrow is provoking and has his full share of faults, and though the owner of a style is capable of excruciating offences. His habitual use of the odious word individual as a noun substantive seven times in three pages of the Romany Rye elicits the frequent groan, and he is certainly once guilty of calling fish the finny tribe. He believed himself to be animated by an intense hatred of the Church of Rome, and disfigures many of his pages by Lawrence Boythorne-like tirades against that institution. But no Catholic of sense need on this account deny himself the pleasure of reading Moro, whose one dominating passion was camaraderie, and who hobnobbed in the friendliest spirit with priest and gypsy in a fashion as far beyond praise as it is beyond description by any pen other than his own. Hail to thee, George Borrow! Cervantes himself, Gilles Blas, do not more effectually carry their readers into the land of the Cid than does this miraculous agent of the Bible Society, by favour of whose pleasantness we can any hour of the week enter Villafranca by night, or ride into Galicia on an Andalusian stallion, which proved to be a foolish thing to do, without costing anybody a peseta, and at no risk whatever to our necks, be they long or short. Cooks, warriors, and authors must be judged by the effects they produce. Toothsome dishes, glorious victories, pleasant books, these are our demands. We have nothing to do with ingredients, tactics, or methods. We have no desire to be admitted into the kitchen, the council, or the study. The cook may clean her saucepans how she pleases. The warrior place his men as he likes. The author handle his material or weave his plot as best he can. When the dish is served, we only ask, Is it good? When the battle has been fought, who won? When the book comes out, does it read? Authors ought not to be above being reminded that it is their first duty to write agreeably. Some very disagreeable ones have succeeded in doing so, and there is therefore no need for any one to despair. Every author, be he grave or gay, should try to make his book as ingratiating as possible. Reading is not a duty, and has consequently no business to be made disagreeable. Nobody is under any obligation to read any other man's book. Literature exists to please, to lighten the burden of men's lives, to make them for a short while forget their sorrows and their sins, their silenced hearths, their disappointed hopes, their grim futures. And those men of letters are the best loved who have best performed literature's truest office. Their name is happily Legion, and I will conclude these disjointed remarks by quoting from one of them, as honest a parson as ever took tithe, or voted for the Tory candidate, the Reverend George Crabb. Hear him in the frank courtship. I must be loved, said Sibyl, I must see the man in terrors who aspires to be. At my forbidding frown his heart must ache, 
his tongue must falter and his frame must shake and if i grant him at my feet to kneel what trembling fearful pleasure must he feel nay such the rapture that my smiles inspire that reason's self must for a time retire alas for good josiah said the dame these wicked thoughts would fill his soul with shame he kneel and tremble at a thing of dust he cannot child the child replied he must were an office to be open for the insurance of literary reputations no critic at all likely to be in the society's service would refuse the life of a poet who could write like crab cardinal newman mr leslie stephen mr swinburne are not always of the same way of thinking but all three hold the one true faith about crab but even were crab now left unread which is very far from being the case his would be an enviable fame for was he not one of the favoured poets of walter scott and whenever the closing scene of the great magician's life is read in the pages of lockhart must not crab's name be brought upon the reader's quivering lip to soothe the sorrow of the soothers of sorrow to bring tears to the eyes and smiles to the cheeks of the lords of human smiles and tears is no mean ministry and it is crab's End of section 52. Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.